Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. As those of you have been here on a regular basis, you know I've been going through the life of Joseph, and I'd like to wrap that up today. As we look at the life of Joseph as a 17-year-old, he was sold into slavery. He was a slave. He was falsely accused by his owner's wife. He was put into prison. He was told he'd be remembered. He was not. And then he was put in the second command of Pharaoh. And he also met his brothers during that time. And now as we look at the final part of the life of Joseph, I see Joseph as a type of Christ in the Old Testament. The lesson text is coming out of Genesis chapter 50, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. So Jacob has passed away. Um, we had in our Sunday school lesson today, he was 147 years old. He was 130 when he met Pharaoh. So they spent 17 years in the land of Egypt, Jacob did, and his brothers. After they met Joseph, and if Joseph was 39 years old when they met at 17, it would make him a 56-year-old man, so pretty young. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 to 20. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, us, commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sins, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I'm going to stop here for a little bit. Put ourselves in Joseph's shoes here a little bit. At this moment, how would we respond? Hadn't Joseph already forgave them? Yet, that one single act of evil that they committed to him really changed his life. I think last Sunday I said they understood that Joseph stood before him with power to do whatever he wanted to do to them. Yet here they are, begging that he forgive them. Proverbs 20, 24 says, you can turn to it if you want, but I'll probably be done reading by the time you get there. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own ways? Jeremiah 29, 11. This is after the Israelites were taken captive. God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Somehow I think Joseph may have known these plans. Let's read on. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. 
For I am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. Can you say the next two words with me as I read? But God. Okay, let's do that. But God. Do we ever have a place in our life today that we need to say, but God? It says, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as of this day to save many people alive. I'm going to read that verse in the new, in the NIV. Um, some of you may have the NIV Bibles. I know Keith has a King James Version, but... I'm going to read this, verse 20. It says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I looked up the word meant in the dictionary. The definition is intend. So we could read verse 20 this way. You intended, you purposefully did evil against me. And if we stop there, we can see why Joseph's brothers asked for forgiveness. Because they knew that they intended to do evil against him. But God. Let's reread that too. But God intentionally, purposefully meant it for good. And we see that the power of God is far greater than the power of evil, right here in this verse. If there's any verse you need to underline or highlight in your Bible, I would say Genesis 50, verse 20 would be one of them. Go back into Genesis 45. I know I covered this last Sunday. Verses 5, 7, and 8. When Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, in verse 5, he says, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7 says, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity. And in verse 8, says, Now it was not you who sent me, but God. So he's telling his brothers here, you did not sell me, God sent me. I know I alluded to Romans 8, 28 earlier in the text of Joseph. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I'd like to paraphrase that a little bit. It says, God uses all things to work together for good, so that even when others intend things for evil, God will use it for our good. Not only for our eternal benefit, but for the benefit of others and to bring about glory to his name. It's hard for me to define exactly what Genesis 50, 20 means because it's so rich and it's so deep. 
I'm just going to read what someone else had wrote about what Genesis 50 reads. It says, the statement made here brilliantly summarizes the difference between God allowing things, God deliberately causing something, and God doing nothing in response to human needs. Even when human beings try to do evil, and even when they succeed, God is still able to use those efforts to accomplish a greater good. This landmark verse makes no excuse for human sin. While emphasizing the events we cannot understand are still part of God's greater plan. And we can look to Romans 8, 28 for that. God has a greater plan. In the previous verse, verse 19, Joseph tried to calm his brother's fears that he would, not, that he would revenge on them. He had already forgiven them. He had already submitted vengeance to God and already accepted that he was not in any position to question God's choices. But Joseph does not downplay what they did to him. Selling him into slavery as a teenage boy was evil, and they meant it for evil. There was no good intention behind their act. They knew full well they were guilty of that. As he had done before, Joseph insists that God's power and God's plan for his people is more powerful than the ability of mere human beings to do evil to each other. He is convinced that not only God's ultimate responsible Sorry, he is convinced that not only was God ultimately responsible for allowing the evil act to happen, but he also mysteriously built it into a larger plan to save his people and many others from the ravages of a deadly drought. To the modern world, this is a startling and unusual perspective, and yet it is how God asks Christians to view our lives as well Sorry, our lives as well, period. Romans 8.28 insists that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purpose. And we see that in Joseph's life. Joseph trusted God, and God worked everything out for his good. Joseph is a wonderful picture of Jesus. Beloved by the Father, hated by his brethren, Betrayed by those he knew and loved. Only to be used by God to save his people from death and destruction before being placed in the highest position in the land, carrying out the will of the Father. In the story of Joseph, there is nothing that is accidental. It is all intentional. The evil that his brothers did and the good that God did was all intentional. How do we see God today? We can see God in two different lights. We can see God as a trailer God. A God of a trailer God is one that comes behind us and picks up the pieces. Or we can see God that goes before us to guide and direct us. And I believe if we look at the life of Joseph, we can see that God was not a trailer God in his life. He went before him he, to guide and direct him. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If God did this for his son, Jesus, 
If he accomplished the death of his son for the redemption of mankind, we can be assured that he will use everything in our lives for his honor and glory. There is nothing outside of his authoritative power, not one single thing. And we can see the same thing in the life of Joseph as we can see in the life of his own son and how people traded him. And we have the advantage that we can see not only the beginning of the life of Joseph, we can see the end of the life of Joseph. And I believe that God had a plan through all of it. This morning, does God's end game purpose change our end game perspective? I'm going to say that again. Does God's end game purpose change our end game perspective? Right now is basketball season. I don't know how many of you like basketball. But I'm going to use the game of basketball as an illustration. If you're playing a game, do you have an end game purpose before you start the game? I see someone say yes. What is that purpose? To win. Let's not be bashful about it, right? We need to score more points than the other team. We win, right? That's our end game purpose. There may be things that happen in the game that changes our end game perspective. The other night, for instance, I was playing Indiana. I'm not trying to brag or anything, but they were down 21 points. Do you think that situation changed their in-game perspective? Sure did. Their in-game purpose didn't change, but their in-game perspective did. Now, I was excited the fact that they made actually a great in-game perspective change because they ended up winning the game. But some of your greatest coaches make the best changes at halftime because they understand that sometimes you have to change your in-game perspective. And I think every one of us in our lives have an in-game perspective if we understand God's in-game purpose. I think Joseph understood that. But I think too often we forget what God's end game purpose is. There's two mistakes that we often make, me included. The first one is don't ignore the main character. Who's the main character? from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50? I'm asking you. It's correct. We tend to think it might be Joseph, but it's not. So don't ignore the main character. God is the main character here. God is the one who sent Joseph. It wasn't his brothers. He is the one who arranged everything, who went before and ended up saving people. So God is the main character. Let's not ignore the main character. The next mistake we often make is we intend to use it just for our own current situation. Don't intend this text just for your current situation. When we make them mistakes, we tend to misread the Bible. 
we may pick out a scripture and intend it just for our circumstances, our circumstances that is happening. Because God is always intentional and purposeful, going ahead of us, even when things that others mean evil for God, evil, God is working so his end game is accomplished. Do we understand what God's end game purpose is? I think we see here in the latter part of verse 20 that God's end game purpose was to save people. It happened here in the life of Joseph and it's happening today. It happened when he sent his son to die in our place. His end game purpose was to save us. I think there's two things that Joseph knew about God and that was that God has authoritative power and that God has an ultimate purpose. Can we today see our story in God's story? I think the problem today for so many Christians is that we fail to see or we don't recognize it. And often that causes a malnutrition Christian. It causes a Christian to have blurred vision. So God's end game is saving people. I can't stand here and tell you that I understand everything of God's end game purpose. But I think sometimes we as people just need to say, I don't know how God does it, but I'm sure glad he does. We don't understand the mind of Christ. We don't understand the mind of God. We can never comprehend everything he does. But can we just say that I don't know, but I'm sure glad he does, and I'm willing to cling to that promise? Turn with me to Revelations chapter 5. Revelations chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. God's end game purpose was to save us. He redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. In Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, But God, it's not us, but it's God that is intentionally in place, intentionally leading us. In John 3, 16, it says, For God. I would like to recite that. I think most of us know it by heart. If I could have you all help me, say John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In closing, I'd like to look at Romans chapter 8. 
to read verses 31 through 34. Actually, I'm going to read verse 28, then I'm going to skip to verse 31 to 34. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercessions for us? I'm glad today that God has an endgame purpose for each of us in our lives today.